Recovery Elevator, episode 23. I was talking to one of my sons on the phone, and I was saying, you know, I think you know, I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm, I'm gonna to stop you know, drinking. And he said, you know, Mom, I'm, I've heard this all before. I, I'm tired of hearing it. Welcome to the Recovery Elevator podcast. My name is Paul. Thank you so much for joining us. According to my Recovery Elevator sobriety app available on Google and on the iTunes app store, I have been sober for 10 months, two weeks, and five days at the time of this recording on July 26th, 2015. The topic of today's podcast is the other side. I'm going to be interviewing Pete, who is not an alcoholic, but he is on the other side of the equation. He is a spouse of an alcoholic, and his wife was interviewed in episode four. And I've received several emails from non-alcoholics who continually listen to the Recovery Elevator podcast, and they say it's been extremely insightful and educational about how the alcoholic mind works. It allows them to better understand their spouse, their brother, their sister, or their close friend. So this is the first episode in a four-part series where I interview somebody who's not an alcoholic. I've also got Shelly from Hawaii on the podcast today. But before we get into the other side segment of the podcast, let's hear from our sponsor, Sober Nation. Sober Nation is the largest online recovery community and treatment resource center. They provide treatment resources to those struggling with addiction as well to family members who are caught in the crossfire. On top of that, Sober Nation is a huge community of good people who share their experience with each other. They have informative content, recent recovery and addiction news, as well as an entire clothing line, which helps expand the culture of recovery. They can be found at www.SoberNation.com. Once again, that's SoberNation.com. The other side of the equation of alcoholism, that would be the people that we put through hell. Our family members, our best friends, our loved ones, our spouses, our girlfriends, our kids, And a very common trait that all alcoholics share is selfishness. Seriously, I did not even think about my parents and loved ones and all the pain and struggles that I put them through when I was going through my alcoholic battle, shall we say. But it had to have been incredibly painful from the outside looking in, watching me just get my ass handed to me by alcohol. And they'd watch me get up, dust off my britches, and keep moving forward. And I'm sure with their positive outlook on life, they'd say, oh, Paul's got it. It's getting better. But it was slowly and more quickly towards the end getting worse. And we alcoholics, we don't do them any favors. We don't give them the code sheet to decipher this crazy behavior we called alcoholism. We somewhat just expect them to know. But at the same time, we don't want them to know. We try to hide it and conceal it, but we expect them to know the emotions and the feelings and the struggles we are going through are unbelievably difficult. How dare them for not knowing that being an alcoholic is so hard? Or how dare them for not talking to me and confronting me about my drinking situation when I'm trying to hide it from them in the first place? We put them in quite the pickle. And on top of that, they're a normal drinker, which means they can have one drink and say, Uh, yeah, I got work tomorrow at 7 a.m. I think I'll stop. I don't want to lose my job. I'm done drinking. We, on the other side of the coin, we can't do that. So they, as normal drinkers, they're supposed to understand the disease of alcoholism and also understand exactly where we are in our battle or our struggle or our fight to control, air quotes, the situation, our drinking situational problem. It really is an impossible situation that we put our loved ones in. When we're right in the middle of our fight with alcoholism, we just expect our loved ones to understand and decipher what we're feeling. But then we get upset when they don't because our expectations are just a little bit too high for them. And where I'm at now, looking back, my parents and my brother actually did a pretty good job. Actually, a light bulb just went off. I'm going to create another mobile app called The Alcoholic Says or Does This but he really means to say or means to do this. For example, your husband says, yeah, I think I'm going to try going a week without alcohol. You know, like I'm gaining a little bit of weight and I'm just going to try it for a week, you know, no alcohol. And what he really means is, sweetheart, I'm an alcoholic. I really can't stop drinking when I start. And me saying that I'm going to go for a week, you should really decipher that as me saying I'm an alcoholic and I need help. 
how the spouse takes it is, oh, good, he's thinking about quitting drinking for a week. Maybe he wants to get back in shape. Maybe this whole not drinking thing for a week, it'll last maybe two weeks, maybe a month. Because I have noticed that drinking is becoming more and more of a priority in his life, and our checkbook is being affected by it, strangely enough. And I'm starting to see bottles all around the house. But no, he's not telling me he's an alcoholic. He just wants to maybe quit for a week. Yeah, I think we're all good here. Expecting our loved ones to understand and interpret our alcoholism while we are purposely keeping them in the dark is like the time I tried to train my standard poodle, Ben, to edit my podcasts. All I got was a bunch of mud on my MacBook Pro, and the podcast didn't get edited, and he downloaded AirBud and All Dogs Go to Heaven with my iTunes account. So let's hear from Pete. Pete, how are you? How you doing, Paul? I'm doing great. Thanks for joining us. Now, Pete is the first interviewee in a four-part series called The Other Side. Now, Pete, congratulations to you, is a normal drinker. What that means, he can have three or four drinks and say, oh, I've got work tomorrow morning at 9 a.m., I'm going to stop. I'm going to put the plug in the jug and stop drinking. Myself, on the other hand, I have three or four drinks and I don't stop until all the alcohol is consumed in the entire room, bar, restaurant, wherever. So Pete, talk to me about Nikki. I'm going to talk to you, ask you a couple of questions about her and Recovery Elevator. Nikki was in podcast episode four. So Pete is Nikki's husband. And Pete, talk to me about when you met Nikki and when you got married. Did you know you were marrying an alcoholic? No, not not at all. I mean, I, I obviously fell in love with her for um, for who she is as a person, and you know, our relationship was was really kind of organic. We worked together, and then uh, we started going out, you know, in groups, and, and really started kind of attracting to each other, and then eventually started dating, moved in together, and, and got married. So it was very very much what we, you'd consider a a normal relationship from that standpoint, romantically, but. You know, there there were signs, you know, kind of hindsight looking back. It kind of, I would say, evolved. You know, I would I would take note that she, you know, she'd have an extra glass of wine at dinner or she'd, uh, she'd always drink. She'd have a drink every day. And I didn't ever, like, need that or want that or even took note of that. And, I, and I slowly, you know, wine would turn into to harder liquor and, and um, kind of evolved into that. So, I, you know, until I wouldn't. I didn't label her or think of her as an alcoholic for for a long time, really, until she until she admitted it. Talk to me about a time in the past when you observed Nikki and you're like, wait a second, there's a flag being raised here. Maybe she's not a normal drinker. Yeah, it was, you know, we've we've moved around the country a couple times and, you know, it, this, it was the same behavior. And, you know, I'm sure many people can relate. I mean, it's an alcoholic's behavior is, is, is pattern, you know, there's, there was the hiding in the bottles, the trust, the lies, and, and it would just get really worse and worse and worse. And, and there was kind of this process that she went through on the realization that she had a problem. And there was a realization on my side as well on what, what the problem was. And then how can I, what do I want to do about it? You know, do I, do I want to, you know, just abandon the relationship or do, do I really want to try to I guess, understand it. And that's when I say the hindsight, like when I look back, she, she definitely, there were signs there, but I don't know, like my parents weren't alcoholics, you know, it wasn't part of our, of our upbringing, you know, and it wasn't really until she tried to quit that she couldn't stop, you know, and really try to cut back. And then she said, you know, she talked to me and said, I think I have a problem. And then, you know, what do you, now what? Like you go on the internet, but that, you know, there's so much there. So, you know, we'd go to a, to an AA meeting and, and really try to figure it out. And I'd go with her because I don't know, you know. And um, we'd really try to, I guess, figure it out together. And that was that was a process. And Pete, the reason why you're on this four-part series of the podcast is because alcoholics are extremely selfish. I've actually never thought about your side of the story or the pain that we put you through. For example, alcoholics, it's all about me, me, me. I never really once thought about the pain and the struggles that my brother went through, that my mom and my dad went through, getting those phone calls late at night, getting the phone call while I'm in Spain just pumping euros into the payphone saying, get me out of here, stuff like that. So that's why I want to hear your side of it. And you mentioned trust. I've heard that most relationships are formed on trust. How does living with an alcoholic affect trust? 
Well, it's it's tough because you know many of your like many of my greatest stories in my life are related to to me being drunk and doing something amazing or you know being at a sporting event or doing something something like that. And you know, same thing with my relationship with Nikki is like the things we would do together were very social, and you know we would do them together. And then when the, when you kind of start seeing the ugly side of the, the you you see that she starts saying things that she doesn't mean, right? And then she starts lying about, you know, if she had a drink or not or how many drinks she had. And then she starts hiding bottles. And, you know, it just kind of escalates to the point where it, it just goes, the train goes off the track. It's just off the rails. And it's, um, you know, it's hurtful, right? And I think she knew that. I mean, that adds to the guilt. But it, it goes beyond that. Obviously, I'm living with her every day. You know, you know we don't have kids, thankfully, if, you know, that, that got sucked into this. But, you know, her, her family is, is aware of, of the, of the struggles and, you know, her friends as well. Like we're not stupid on this side of the fence. You, you can, I can pinpoint and spot on the phone if she's had a drink or, you know, halfway into a glass of wine, like there's a look in her eye. I can tell. Right. And, and because of that, you, you kind of like, it got to the point where it's so bad, like mentally, as soon as she got to that place, you know, where she had a drink or anything, like I just had to like, just shut down and, and just not even acknowledge her as a person. And it, it sounds really harsh, but it was helpful for me to separate her personality that when she would drink, she's this person and everything she says, she doesn't mean it, it's the alcohol talking and the person that I love is the person that's sober. And the, the person that drinks is really, it's, they're not intending to hurt me. And I I knew that because the thing that was, was helpful for me is when we'd wake up in the morning and she was sober, she wouldn't have the same feelings the night before. Like she wouldn't be still mad at me or, or, or screaming at me for something that she was upset with, you know? So I knew it was the alcohol talking and I knew like our relationship was still sound, but it, you know, it, it hurt to watch that. Like this person you love is, is, is dealing with something they can't control and they never wanted. Like she, she tells me like, like I didn't want to become an alcoholic. I didn't choose this life. It just, it's kind of like became this and now it's a problem. Now I got to do something about it. Pete, talk to me about how bad it got. Was there ever a moment where you thought this is incurable? There's no solution for this except I need to remove myself from the situation, right? Did you ever think about leaving Nikki and, and talk to us about that? How bad did it get? Yeah, it, it you know, and it took a lot to get it because I love her so much, you know, and so I was trying to take my own steps and I, you know, I would go to Al-Anon, which is kind of the AA for, for fa- friends and family and, and trying to cope with that. And it was nice because you're in a group of people that, that, uh, I mean, like a men's group and there's about a hundred guys and, we, and, it, and it's just really comforting. Everybody's kind of going through the same thing, whether it's their spouse or their kid and everybody just kind of talks freely. And that, that's, you started to see a lot of similarities that they're experiencing the same thing. And one of the big things in Al-Anon is control. And I was trying to control the situation. I would pour the bottles out. I'd tell her how much I hated that she drinks and, you know, I wanted her to stop. And, and, and basically they, they teach you that you, you really need to not control the situation, you know? And what, what really worked for us is, is a couple things. And this is something I, I talk about with her mom because she's, she's living in another state and really didn't, she doesn't understand what's going on is you know, this like alcoholism is, is a disease, right? I truly think of it that way. And I think of it as a disease and that if you think of like alcoholism, like the flu, like if you have the flu, for you to get better, you need to see a doctor, right? And you need to take medicine and you, you need to take the steps to get better, right? And same thing with, with alcoholism, that like she needed to choose to do that. And that kind of relates to the control aspect for me is, you know, I needed to, to not control her. And there was times where we would get in such a big fight. I, I mean, one of the big fights we had, I, I ended up, I was yelling at her and I remember I was kind of shaking her and I, and I knew like in my head, I was like, this isn't me. This isn't us. And I ended up, I called the paramedics on our own house, right. To come and like be some sort of intervention to kind of calm things down. Like, I mean, it just sounds ridiculous, but it's these things that happen in the heat of the moment. And, it, and thankfully there was, it didn't escalate beyond that, you know, and it got to the point where it got so bad. And I realized I was trying too hard. I left, you know, and I, and I, um, I, I went to stay with a friend. It lasted one night. And I think she knew that was it. Like when I left, like she literally had lost everything, her relationship with her friends or family. And that was really the rock bottom. And that was the single hardest night I've ever had to go through because you're, you're, 
you're walking away from the person you love and for a reason that's out of their control. You know, like how do you, how do you bring that to terms? And when we did that, we kind of sat back down and said, well, how are we really going to tackle this? You know, it was for me getting some ground underneath her, you know, that's why I kind of try to just quit on your own. It's impossible. Literally. I can't even, that's one like piece of advice. I talk to anyone like you cannot quit on your own. And for her, it was like everything we do is involving alcohol, like, you know, going out after work or tailgating or camping or hanging out with friends. All of that is involving alcohol. So it's a, it's a lifestyle change. You got to commit to that. But before you even get there, you need to get that ground underneath you. And for us, uh, Nikki on her own chose to go to a sober living. You know, it's basically a house where she's living with other um, sober uh, sober people. It was a women's only house and uh, very nice. I mean, it's a nicer house than, than, I'm, than we live in. So, you know, it was very comforting in that she went to an environment that she felt comfortable in. And then she could quit and like work on this, work on her recovery with other people and not have to worry about life. And I know not everybody has that, that luxury, but for her, that was the, I think gave her a chance. And I told her like, don't just go here for a month. Like if you need two or three or six months, like whatever it takes. And it was, you know, around the corner from where we lived and just work on you. And I think that was like this healthy, sober environment for her to, to, to progress out of the, the bottom that we were at. Talk to me about control and just how hard it was to give up control. Because I'm just going to quote some things that you said. You said, we're not stupid on this side of the fence. And I agree 100% with you. We all thought you were stupid on the other side of the fence. We're extremely good at hiding it. But from our spouses, it's difficult. And I do know a couple things. Unfortunately, if you're really ready to quit alcohol, you have to get your butt kicked by alcohol and literally we what we put you guys through is we make you guys if you give up control which has to happen you guys are basically looking from the outside in through a glass window just watching us get our own butts kicked by alcohol how hard was that to watch your loved one your wife Nikki just get beat up by alcohol yeah i mean you're you're watching somebody that you love and you obviously love them for many reasons go through something they can't even control. And that's, I go back to the disease factor. Like she was sick with this and it just overtook every single part of her life. And I'm watching this day by day and I can't even put into words how awful that is, you know? And it got to the point she went to the hospital for two weeks and yeah, and I talked about our bottom before. I, this is even lower. Right. And she, she was, she was put in ICU and I had a doctor come in and tell me that she was a coin flip away from living or dying. And it was this, this young doctor. And it's just like, how do you even give it a chance like that? But, you know, I was kind of faced with that. But I, you know, I watched what she went through because she came out of the ICU and she didn't even know that her whole family had flown in. Her friends were there. And it, some of it was related to something else she was going through. But a lot of it was, was the alcohol that had really, you know, her nutrition was really low and everything that was, was going on. I'm watching all of this as a, as a bystander. And you're just... I just get mad, but I don't get mad at her. I get mad at the disease and you have that frustration. So then, then the control kicks in, right? And I want to do everything. So I get her on a budget. I take away her, her debit cards and I give her six bucks to go buy cigarettes. And then she goes and buys the most garbage vodka like you've ever seen because that's what you can get for $6, you know? And, and it was just like, I started to realize no matter what I did and I'd, I'd go around the entire house, I'd pour out all the bottles, I'd leave them on the table or just do, you know, passive aggressive crap like that. Like, it didn't matter. None of what I did mattered. And until I really sat down and listened to, to her saying, look, I have a problem. You need to help me. And I, and I, and it kind of gets to the point where you're just like, well, I, the only thing I can do to help you is be supportive. I can't do anything. I just have to love you and, and trust that you, you can make this decision on your own, but you have to decide to quit. I, I can't take the bottle away from you. Like, that's just, that's not, that's not my role in this whole thing. And, and it's impossible because you love this person. You just want the best for them, right? And you want the best for, for us raising a family and all of that. And then you, you know, so I then, the other thing that you don't really get a glimpse of is I then become kind of the beacon for her, right? And, and then all of her family and her friends, they just unload on me because they can't talk to her about it. It's such a difficult conversation to have with people. 
So they're talking to me about it. You know, what do we do? She's got a problem. Like all the, you're just like, well, they care about her, but then it becomes like this weird personal situation between her and I, and it's, it's overwhelming. And, and all of that's related to the disease. And she didn't want to put me through that. And I don't blame her for that, but that's just the nature of what's going on. And it's, it's a family thing, right? Everybody's involved and everybody knows. I mean, it's, it's not, it, this is not a secret that, that you, that you have this problem and it affects everyone in a very, very bad way because most people have no idea what to do when it comes to this. With the selfish trait that alcoholics have, I really didn't even think about the pain that I was putting my loved ones through. And, and after what you just spoke upon, Pete, I want to say, hold on, put you on hold. I want to call my parents, I want to call my brother, I want to call my friends who I put through a lot of pain and say sorry because I've never really thought of it like the way you just explained it from the other side. And Pete, let's move in a different direction, Pete. A little over a year ago, Nikki decided to quit drinking. Now, you probably thought, outsiders looking in, that it's an immediate transformation, right? You stop drinking, all the problems go away. That's not the case, and you know that. But talk to me about the transformation and how it's been in the last, what was it like in the first month, two months, three months, and, and bring us up to today. Well, you know, for, for us, she just passed 18 months, and I, I, I mean, I'll, I'm elated. It, it is our life now to where we were a year and a half ago. It's, it's insane how much progress you can make when you really, when you really work on it, how much of your life you get back. But I think back to when we started and I know when she went into sober living, like she had tried sober living before for three months and then it didn't work because she didn't want it. You know, I for, basically forced her to go to that sober living, the first one. And then the second one, she wanted to go. So there was a difference there. But so that first month I kind of took it as, I don't know if this is going to work. I don't, we'll see, let's go, let's take it for the first 30 days. If she can do this, then I know she's serious about it. And then we'll, we'll take it from there. But I wasn't planning on, on, I didn't really set expectations because she tried to quit before and then we just go back and relapse. And it was just over and over and that whole cycle. So I didn't really know. And then, so she gets this 30 days under her belt and she's like, she's really excited. And, and I go back to that sober environment and she was going to meetings every day and the women around her really were like celebrating, you know, her progress and she felt good because she felt like, not that I have it under control, but I at least stopped the bleeding and, and she slowly got out of that. So, you know, when she, there was a big transition from when she got out of sober living to kind of move back into our house, which is kind of the scene of the crime. And okay, what do we need to do? And she wasn't working at the time. And when I was working, you know, she's home alone a lot. And she, you know, I said like, what do we, what can we do to really, you know, make sure that you're busy and, and just get her ideas on, on that. And so she, she had friends that she had met in sober living and she, you know, they had plenty of meetings that they were going to. And then she started looking for work and, and really kind of got her life back. It took over the course of the year, you know, and then you see all the other side effects. Her skin looks at her better hurt. She doesn't have the, you know, the moods. We haven't had a, a big argument since she's been sober. I mean, how crazy is that in a year and a half? And, and it's because we removed the, the, you know, the catalyst, you know, I'm starting to see like her relationships with her family or, or, or on the mend, you know, her friend relationship with friends. It's still, you know, it's still a work in progress because your family is, you know, it's your family for life. Right. But your friends really don't, some of them have no idea like what to say now, like, because they're still going to drink, like where, whatever they're doing. So whenever we go camping or doing something, there's like a word kind of elephant in the room. So, and she, you know, how we disclose that to people and, and owning that and kind of some people know, some people don't. So it's, you know, it's this, this transition, but we're both kind of true to ourselves in that we know this is the right path we want to go on. And um, it's just, it's this great, uh, great progress that we're seeing. Pete, I'm going to put you in the hot seat right now. So she's been sober for 18 months, which is incredible. She's pretty much cured for the rest of her life, right? <laughs> I would, I would hope. No, I, I've. I know this well enough now that uh, there is a chance she would relapse. And I've gone through that in my, in my head. And I, I know now, I mean, the more time she gets under her belt, the more I think she will feel like she let herself down. I know she'd do that even three months in, but the more time she builds, like it's this positive weight behind her. Right. And I know if I get that call or she shows up and she's had a drink or whatever, I'm not counting on that to happen. 
But I also know in my head for my own health, I need to know that that could happen. And all the odds point to that it will happen. And I just know I need to be supportive and it's got to be her choice on how to handle it on what's next. And if she chooses to go down that path again, then I got to have the, I guess the guts to say, look, then this isn't going to work, you know, and go back down that other path and walk away. And I, I, I don't put myself mentally in that place because I don't think it's healthy for the relationship, but I do know that it could happen. And all I can do is try to make, you know, and be a good husband and be a provider and make sure that we're living our life and we're not putting ourselves in a, in a tough situation. I have this great thing and she's, she's quoted me on it that I was a wrestler in, in high school and I wasn't very good, but I got pinned a lot. So my wrestling coach gave me this great analogy that is simple, but it, it really kind of applies here. And he said, don't put yourself on your back. Like I would, I would basically be wrestling with somebody and I would, I would somehow do some stupid move and end up on my back and he'd pin me, but he didn't really pin me. It was more me putting my own self on my back. And, and I see that here is we don't put ourselves in situations that are not going to be conducive to her recovery. You know, we're not going to a bar to watch, to watch a game, you know, because it's, there's, there's too much pressure. It's not, it's not, it's not healthy. We're trying to basically figure because we still want to go camping and do all these other things but we're slowly reintroducing that and and it's, and it's really working well. I am finding it hard to believe that you were not a good wrestler. And cause you're pushing 280 right now. I, I can't believe anybody could possibly <laughs> put you on your back. Anyways, I'd like to say, Pete, you are a smart man for mentally preparing yourself for what might happen. Fingers crossed. It doesn't happen as much as I want my parents to think that I'm cured gosh, I am taking this one day at a time and there is nothing that comes in front of my sobriety. I know that's hard for my parents or people on the outside to understand, but anything that I put and that Nikki puts in front of her sobriety, for example, if Nikki were to put you number one on her priority, she'd eventually lose you if you are ahead of sobriety. But I got one more question for you, Pete. This whole alcoholism thing, this whole alcohol beast is really a matter of life and death. I want to focus more on the living part. What is it like now that she's sober? Because when she was drunk, she's probably not living. How is she living life and being in the moment now that she's sober with you? Well, you know, our, our trust is back. And, and that trust obviously has led, our love is stronger than we've ever been. And we kind of look at our relationship now like we've gone through through hell together because of this disease, right? And we know if we can last through that, then we're going to be fine in the future, even if there's a relapse, right? Because we can, we can build on, continue to build on this foundation. And so she's working full time again in a field that she wanted to get into for years. I think the alcohol really helped stand in the way of making progress there, but she's, she's loving it, right? And our life is, is fantastic. We, you know, we bought a house, we have this, this great dog, you know, it's, it's all these little things that I'm noticing now. And we just really are enjoying life. I don't know how else to put it. Like we're just in a really good place now and we don't need to drink for any of that. Like in, you know, the weird thing, I, I didn't really touch on this. I don't really enjoy alcohol myself now because I know what it did to her. And I kind of look at it differently. Like that's, I just don't, I mean, I'll, I'll do it when I'm, when I'm out with coworkers or something, but I only have like a drink. Like it's just, not, it's not enjoyable for me because you, you see what it does to people. And it's just like, not that I feel like I'm going to get there, but I just have this like, you know, this bad association with it. And she's so much more confident and she, you know, she's able to kind of take this head on and her herself, like, you know, I would tell her, I, I, I could tell her when there was progress that, you know, she's being really strong and she's, and she feels so weak. Right. But she is, you know, to, to take this head on and, and to really do it and make a commitment to it, it, it it's admirable. And I just, I have all the love for it. And our, and our life is forever changed in a, in a positive way. And, you know, it's funny, like I start thinking at some point we'll have kids in it. You know, how do we, how do we talk about this? You know, how do we, how do we bring this up? Nor if we ever do, but you know, maybe they'll have problems when they're, when they're getting older. Like it, we know kind of at least what our situation was. And, and right now it's things are, things are, couldn't be better. This has been an informative podcast for myself because I have learned more about what it's like on that other side. And Pete, I know you just said you don't really enjoy alcohol that much, but have 42 Heinekens for me. That's what I would normally consume on a weekend night. Pete, thank you so much for joining us on Recovery Elevator Podcast. Great. Thank you so much.
pretty shocking and alarming stuff from Pete that really I had never thought about. I can't wait for next Monday's section of The Other Side. Now let's hear from Shelly, who, like me, is an alcoholic. Recovery Elevator, I'd like to welcome Shelly to the podcast. Shelly, how are you? I am great. Fantastic. Recovery Elevator, Shelly is joining us from Hawaii. She is 54 years old. And Shelly, how long have you been sober? This time around, I've been sober for 74 days. 74 days. Congratulations. And I think I'm wrong on that. You're not for, you're, you're not in Hawaii now. You're in California, but you normally live in Hawaii, correct? That's right. Before we get into the list of questions, just tell me what it's like being sober with 74 days in Hawaii. You know, my perception is luau's on the beach. <laughs> is that tough getting sober in Hawaii? You know what? It's interesting. One of the guys in my group who's actually a heroin addict said to me, boy, you know, you, I have it so easy compared to you. And I said, why? And he said, because alcohol is everywhere. And he's so right, because I actually live near Waikiki, and I work in Waikiki part of the time, and it is everywhere. You can't walk anywhere without going past a bar or hearing the people hooping up in a bar, and it, it makes it difficult. I can only imagine, yes. And, and Shelly... <laughs> Talk to me about the podcast title. Tell me about your elevator. When did you decide to get off and you were done writing it down? You know, it's funny because um, two, two significant things happened within about three days of me deciding to stop. One of them was I was actually walking home from work and I'd had an incredibly bad day. At, I, I worked three jobs and I'd had a, an incredibly bad day at one. And the thought crossed my mind, gosh, you know, I'd probably be okay if I just had one vodka drink. And that was significant because I have not touched hard alcohol for four years. And that just scared the crud out of me. And then the other significant um, thing that happened was I was talking to one of my sons on the phone and I was saying, you know, I think you know, I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm, I'm gonna to stop you know, drinking. And he said, you know, mom, I'm, I've heard this all before. I, I'm tired of hearing it. And the sound of his voice was so disappointed. And that just that tore me up. I mean, I'm getting teary-eyed just thinking about it. It just tore me up inside. So it wasn't about waking up with a horrible hangover again or missing work or getting fired. It was about that sound of disappointment and being scared that I actually considered having a hard alcohol drink after so long of not having one. Shelly, talk to me about your drinking habits before you decided to quit drinking 74 days ago. Did you ever try to regulate it? Oh, my gosh. Yeah. I, you know, like I said, I hadn't, I hadn't consumed hard alcohol for four years, and that was part of my regulating it because I absolutely know that if, if I did take one shot of vodka, I could have seven or eight. I'd just keep going because it doesn't make me feel bloated like beer was. So, oh, you know, I'll drink beer. It makes me feel full faster. I won't drink as much at one sitting, that is. So I tried regulating myself that way. did the whole thing of I'm just going to have it once a month on, you know, payday. I'm just going to have it... Once a week, I'm going to have one to go watch a ball game. I'm going to have it, I'll just have it on the weekends. And then it was, well, I'll just have it on the weekends and Wednesday. And it just ended up being every night. And by the time I stopped, I was drinking every night. And I couldn't even pass a 7-Eleven without stopping and getting a six-pack. Shelly, talk to me about how drinking affected relationships. And it sounds like when you told your son that you're going to quit drinking, he said, Mom, I've heard this all before. We, we've heard this before, you know. Talk to me about that. That had to be disappointing, and, and you said it did hurt. Yeah, it did. You know, it's interesting. I, I think the relationships that were affected the most were, like like you say, my, my youngest son, who's in his 20s now. You know, they're both adults. But he he doesn't remember the days of me waking up in his brother's room after a three-day bender. And his his brother remembers a little bit of that, but the, the younger one doesn't remember those things because I was sober for so much. I was sober for nine years once. And so he remembers that. He just remembers what happened when I started drinking again. And that was around the time when um, his dad and I were breaking up or in the process of it, trying to stay back together, but breaking up. And it was just a, a hell and his whole senior year of high school was ruined by the breakup of the marriage, um, other issues in the family, and me drinking again. And while I wasn't a sloshing drunk, it did affect things because, you know, I'd forget things or I, I wouldn't be where I was supposed to be. And the one thing in my life that's more important than anything are my two kids. And hearing disappointment for them or from them or finding out that I didn't do what I needed to do as a mom 
which I considered to be protect my kids. I didn't protect them from things that was going that were going on in their lives. And I know that's because I started drinking again. Um, even though I white knuckled it for nine years, at least I wasn't drinking. And I did protect them as much as I could. But boy, when I started drinking again, I was devoted to the alcohol and devoted to the craziness in my marriage. And that threw them off the bus. And that's the part that I can't ever get back. And I can't, I can't make it right, but I can just move forward. And, and that's still really hard right now. Shelly, talk to me about white knuckling it for nine years. I did that for two and a half years and the wheels came off pretty quickly. So I have no idea how you made it to nine years. And what do you think happened at the end, which caused you to relapse? Well, I'll tell you what, I, I decided to stop drinking on October 1st, 2001. Now, there's a lot of significance to that date if you think back historically, right? Um, a lot was going on. I was involved in a lot of things that, that had connection to, to 9-11. But I really don't remember what caused me to come home one day and, and just kind of frustratedly, frantically say to my, my then husband, I, I'm not going to drink anymore. And he didn't understand it. He just thought I was being weak-minded and because he drank. And I can't speak to his you know, relationship with alcohol, but it, there definitely was something going on there, and we always drank together, and so I wasn't drinking. So there's still alcohol in the house. He we didn't stop. He didn't curtail it, you know, for him, for me. And so I was just really busy. I was getting another master's degree. The kids were all over the map going to sports games, and so I was just constantly busy. And throughout this time, my career progressed into more and more uh, requirements hour wise I was working seven days a week in an executive job, long hours, long days, and so I really didn't have time to drink. Ironically, I was around a lot of alcohol because there were a lot of events I had to go to, and these people just pounded it was incre- it was crazy, but I was able to not drink and when people asked me why, you know they thought it was maybe because of health reasons because I'd gotten back into fitness, and you know maybe that's why I didn't drink but What uh, ended my nine years of sobriety was being out with my then-husband one evening, and it was really at the brink of when our marriage had been on the rocks for probably three years now now that I realize it. But we were out for dinner, and I'd excuse myself to go to the restroom, and I came back, and there was my, you know, club soda with lime and a little bit of cranberry juice that I had been drinking whenever I went out, right? My safety drink. And I took a sip of it, and my brain did two things. It did. It said, oh, my God, there's alcohol in this, and oh, God, that tastes so good. I didn't say a word to him about why in the heck did you put alcohol in my drink? Why did you order me a drink with alcohol? I never confronted him about it, never said a word. My brain just turned, flipped on, and I was gone, and I started drinking again. Shelly, I got to tell you a similar story. In 2012, about two weeks before I had my full-on relapse, I was at a wedding, and went up to the bar and it said Montana Huckleberry Lemonade. It was a hot summer wedding Saturday day, right? And I asked the bartender, I said, does this have alcohol in it? She says, oh, no, 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 no worries. So I have it. I, I take a sip and something was a little off. I asked the bartender again. She again says no. And after about 15 minutes, I had two or three of them. You know, and I couldn't tell. I really couldn't tell. It was very, very weak. But there were parents there as well saying, does this have alcohol in it? And after about 10 of us were around there who have asked, that bartender went and asked, I think, the head caterer. And sure enough, she came back and said, oh, my gosh, there is alcohol in this. And the wedding planner was running around the wedding, taking cups out of kids' hands. It was kind of a fiasco that was humorous to a lot of people. Now, however, I was kind of like, oh, sh-, you know. I, I just yeah. <laughs> I just drank after two and a half years of sobriety, and I didn't really mm-hmm. count it, but guess what happened two weeks later? I drank. After that club soda with cranberry and alcohol and a lime, what happened after that? We were, we were working out again. We were exercising, and I would, uh, we'd come home. I'd come home from work. We'd work out, either go to the gym, work out at home, have dinner, and sit down and have a cocktail or two or three. And this, is, this happened every night. And it went on, you know, and then we would go out and I, we would drink and it was so bizarre because I wasn't able to monitor my drinking. I really wasn't able to like, you know, say I'm only going to have three or something like that. I would just keep going and he would never do anything to stop it. And I would get so hammered 
And then he would be really disappointed in me because I got so hammered that, you know, the, the, the good part of the evening didn't happen, I'll put it that way. It was a very bizarre relationship as it ended. It was just, there was so much strangeness going on in, in what was going on in his head and me drinking. And, of course, he was drinking throughout all this, too. Um, but then by the end, I, I still was drinking even after, you know, we split up and then probably about three months later, I said, okay, I got to stop this. And then I stopped it. white knuckled it again. And I did that. And it's so funny because over that period of time, you know, that's, it's been almost four years since I took that drink. And every time you try to get sober, it's harder and harder and harder. And the time in between sobriety is shorter and shorter and shorter. So it would go from, you know, months, almost an entire year to six months. And then it went to maybe a couple of months to a few weeks until finally this sixth time around now, I've been sober for four, 74 days. I'm, I'm sober while I'm talking to you and I plan to be sober all day today and I want to go to bed sober tonight because today is all I've got. So, you know, like every every time I introduce myself and say, hi, my name's Shelly, I'm still an alcoholic. It's kind of funny, but it's it's the truth and I'm still an alcoholic even though I've got 74 days of sobriety. Listeners, I want to touch base on something that Shelly said. She said, every time I tried to quit drinking, it got harder and harder and harder. I had the same experience after I relapsed after two and a half years. I said, oh, I got it again. I can do this. But in 2014, I could not quit drinking basically and almost for the life of me. And the reason why, Shelly, you can probably touch base on this a bit more than I can. It's a progressive disease. Talk to me about how it has been progressive for you and why do you think it's harder? I've inherited the werewolf's curse. My dad was an alcoholic, and we have every reason to believe that his mom was. So we don't know how far back this goes. But, um, there, you know, there's people, I, 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 I'm in the fitness industry, and I'm also a professional educator, and I can read all the white papers, I can read all the research, and there's, there's stuff on both sides that says, oh, no, it's, anybody can, can, can not drink. You know, it's not really a disease. Well, you know what? It's, it's hereditary in my family. It's, I can see it in all corners of my family, not just alcohol, but just the addicted mind. And so it's predicated to it. And I look at my sisters and brother and my one sister and brother, they're, they're fine. You know, they've, they've had their issues, but they're fine. And one of the other ones, she's probably a little bit more along the lines like me. And I don't sit there and say, oh, okay, it's inevitable, I'm going to drink, because I hated it growing up. I absolutely hated it. I was the youngest. I was the one left at home during the worst of it. I have memories of being five years old, and my arms are reaching up like I'm reaching up at a counter, and I'm mixing my dad's martinis. And I didn't come from, you know, the slums. My, my dad was a teacher, and we lived in a pretty decent house, and we never, I mean, we didn't have a lot of money, but we never wanted for anything. So we were never beaten and things like that. Um, you know, I came home to dinner and food and, and, and fun. But, yeah, there was alcohol all the time. And so I never wanted to drink it. I never wanted to take a drop. I think I had a sip of a beer, maybe had one when I was in high school, and it tasted horrible. And it wasn't until my sophomore year in college when I actually – well, my freshman year in college, I, had, I drank once. It was horrible. And then my sophomore year in college, when I met my – who was to become my husband, that's when I really started drinking. It was the college parties on the weekend. And gosh, the guys were so impressed with how much I could drink as a female, right? And so I was like the local party trick. And um, I just drank and drank and drank. Not a lot of hard alcohol, though. It was mostly just beer. It wasn't until my mid-20s that I started drinking more hard alcohol. And I'd get together with some of our friends, and one of them would say, hey, you want another bone crusher? While everybody else is almost passed out. I'm like, yeah, sure, give me another one. And it just progressed from there. And I never drank when I was pregnant, never drank when I was nursing. I was such a responsible drunk. Never drank before 5 o'clock. I never drank at work or during the work day. I was just, like, uber responsible. But when I did, it just was all out. And uh, by the time I got to the point where I was, quote, unquote, regulating it, it was silly. I mean, I sit back and look at it now, and I can even listen to people talk, you know, new people that come into our group. And, man, I hear all the words coming out of their mouth, and it's my words coming out of their mouth. I just chuckle to myself saying, how silly did I sound? But I thought I sounded pretty smart that I was regulating it. I was controlling it. And there's no control. You can't control it, and, and you're, you're dumb to think you can, and there's no way you can control it. And the best thing I've learned is not only can't I control my drinking, but I can't control anything past my nose. 
And that's probably the best lesson in all this because I spent my entire life trying to control my environment because it was always so crazy. And uh, that was the only way I could survive was to control everything around me. And I was good at it, and it became my life's work. You know, I was always in jobs where things had to be controlled, and I was good at it. And it just drove me into insanity, practically, and um, where I just left it in a complete line of work, walked away from it, walked away from a six-figure income, and ended up, you know, pretty much with nothing after my divorce and um, ended up having to move across the Pacific Ocean for a job because there were none where I was at. So people think, oh, you moved to Hawaii. That's awesome. That's pretty sexy. I'm like, no, actually, I did it because I had to. I'd much rather be living on the mainland where I can see my family and be around my kids, but I'm stuck on a rock in the middle of nowhere because I have to, because I have to work. And so consequently, it made it worse because I was isolated and that made the drinking much more like accessible. Like I'm going to drink because it makes me feel better, and it's and it's okay because I'm only having beer, and it just made it worse instead of better. So the whole isolation thing was just a bad move. But it, I, it is what it is, and I'm working my way back, and I just have to take it like they say, one day at a time. Shelly, it sounds like you understand an important foundation of recovery, which is control, and you can't control any of it. Talk to me a little bit about that and how it's got to be hard for somebody like you, you know, making a six-figure income, having executive jobs, to relinquish control and just say, all right, I don't got this. I'll tell you what, that, that's been the hardest thing. And, you know, one of the things that my, my therapist, which I got into therapy about a year ago just to deal with anger issues and stuff like that. It wasn't even about, I thought it was about stopping drinking, but it was really more about the anger and resentment that I was still feeling about my my collapsed marriage and life. But one of the things that she really made me understand was that, you know, I just wasn't, I wasn't willing to take help because I'd always had to solve every problem on my own. My mom was awesome. I mean, she was always there when things fell apart and she was there to help pick me up. But I don't have that, and I'm, I don't have a spouse. I don't have, I mean, I have siblings, but everybody's far away. I've always had to do everything on my own and take care of business. I've had to cover up for my, my husband or cover up for people at work or, you know, just make things right. And so in my current position, I'm not in that. I mean, I'm in a, just a, a clerical position. I'm also a fitness trainer. I mean, I just I work all these jobs just to make ends meet. I am not in charge, and I don't want to be in charge. And that was like the first part of relinquishing control was because I wasn't in control anymore. I wasn't in charge of anybody. And it was a real relief to not be in charge of anybody anymore or of anything. Like letting go of, of not being in control of me, that was hard. And so that first step of saying, I accept that I have no control over my, my drinking. It wasn't just that, as I have no control over anything in life. And being able to say that out loud was the hardest thing I had to do. And so would it have been easier, you know, in 2001 if I had tried a 12-step program or something? Maybe, maybe not. But I realize now I probably wasn't ready for it. I have eschewed all those programs up until now for a lot of reasons. They even tried one for professionals by where I live. And it just was so irritating because the people in the group were all pilots or flight attendants who were there because they had to be because in order to get their jobs back, I was there because I wanted to be. And I was like, wait a minute, I want to be here. You guys are forced to be here. And, and you're all talking like it's because you have to be and you're all resentful. And I want to be here. I want to be in a place where I'm with a bunch of people that want to be here and want to make this right. Because I look at you and I think, so when are you going to drink again? Because if you're just being, you're just doing it because you have to, that tells me you're going to do it again. And it wasn't until my son said, Mom, I, you know, don't think you're, you know, I've heard this all before. And on the very same day, my therapist said, you know, if you wanted to effing stop drinking, you would stop. And that was like it. And that day I walked home and I said, okay. And I looked up an AA meeting online and I went to the closest one I could. And, but it took me four times to get out of the house. I'd walk out of my house and I turn around and walk back in and I walk out and finally I said, get on the damn bus and go to the meeting. And I went, I got there and I've been going every single day ever since, except while I'm on this trip. I've actually gone to meetings while I've been on my trip, but every single day I've been at that meeting and that has been my lifeline. I needed to be in a place where everybody was like, yeah, walk in the door, you're totally fine. Because I haven't felt that at some places. I've actually been to different meetings since I've been on my trip. It hasn't felt like that. It's felt a little more mechanical. That group of people, I'm telling you, there are people in that group that have been in there for 35 years because that, that group's been around for a long time. And there's people that have been in and out of that group over and over again. 
and there's people that are there for their first time. And I, if I didn't have that every single day, I know I wouldn't have had 74 days today. Shelly, that's a good segue into my next question. You've got 74 days today. What is your plan without controlling everything moving forward in sobriety? Well, I stay away from alcohol as much as I can. Going to the art house the other night with my sons, the only reason I was able to do that is because I was with my sons. And I knew, especially one of them, would have probably slapped me upside the head if I had even thought of, drink, of ordering an alcoholic drink. But I didn't have the urge to do it at all. It was nice to be able to sit there and talk and watch the game, and it was totally fine. But I have to stay away from it. I can't, you know, I, I go into, there's one bar in Waikiki I go into because everyone knows me, and they, they I show them my recovery elevator, I show them my sense app so they can see how many days, they cheer me on, and they know that it's a club soda with lime and crayon. Any new bartender goes to Shelly, she's an alcoholic, and the only thing you ever serve her is, and it's not their responsibility, but that's amazing and awesome. And so I can go in there, and I can enjoy watching the, the surfers, and I can, you know, sit and watch a game and not worry that I'm going to be tempted. But I have to stay away from it. And so I haven't gone to a lot of events because I know that I can. And I've told the people, you know, I, I just won't feel comfortable. There's going to be alcohol all over, and it's going to be free-flowing, and I'm, I'm just going to be too tempted, and I, it's going to make me uncomfortable trying to be in control the whole time. So I just can't do it right now. So I have to do that. Um, I don't, there's certain, I don't, when I have to buy my bus pass at 7-Eleven, I have to walk straight in the front door, stand at the front counter, and wait until someone can wait on me, because if I walk around that store, I will go and buy a six-pack. As much as I know that I don't want to do it, I know that I can easily walk back there and get it. So I have to be really careful about where I go and what I do, and that's just for my own good. Um, I'm like a you know, kid in a candy store right now. You know, if I walk into a candy store, I'm just going to go buy those five candy candies, and I can't do that. So that's part of control. That is being, that's controlling it. I know that, but I have to do that because if I don't, then I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to relapse. And could I relapse today? Absolutely, I could, even doing all those things. But knowing that I could and admitting that I could is also part of it. I think the problem before is that like, oh, no, I'm totally fine. I'm not drinking. I'm never going to drink again. No, you can't say that. You have to say, you know, today I'm sober right now at this very moment, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to drive back to my son's apartment, and we're going to go to his college, and we're going to do some work today. And then tonight, I don't know what's going to happen. And all I know is right now I'm sober, and that's, how, that's all I can do. And it's not control. It's just accepting that at any moment I could slip. And it's kind of scary because that means, you know, God, you, for, I'm 54 and I plan to be around another 50 years if you look at the longevity of my family. <laughs> That's a long time to not have a drink. And I like, I like drinking. I mean, I like the feel of it. But I can't do it because it's not healthy. So I have to make sure I also don't substitute other things for the addiction like I, I have before, which was overtraining disordered eating, um, all these things that you can do that I t talk to my clients about all the time, and I have to make sure I don't fall in that trap. And I think that's the other part of my sobriety is being completely honest and transparent, which before, I might have said I wasn't drinking, but I never said why. Now I am all out about it. I am an outed alcoholic. I tell people I'm an alcoholic, and I'm not shy about it. And that's been really hard. Now, at my day job, I don't like to tell people I'm an alcoholic. My boss knows. I've been very honest with him about it because I've had to have some accommodations. But everywhere else in my life, especially my fitness profession, my clients know. And I'm telling you, there are so many of my clients that have come out to me and said, you know what? I was afraid to say anything, but that's why I haven't been following my routines because I'm, I'm an addict. I'm an alcoholic or other fitness professionals or whatever. And it's been a godsend because I don't feel so alone now. I don't feel like I have to be perfect anymore, which is what I felt my whole life. I had to be perfect. I don't have to be perfect anymore. I can be totally flawed and I'm still okay. I can still work and do my job. I don't, I, I even got a really crappy review at work a couple weeks ago and it doesn't bother me because I don't have to be perfect anymore. I still have a job. I didn't lose it. And so that's the amazing part about all of this is being in recovery and accepting all that means that I can let go of the perfection. And that is so amazing. Shelly, I got to congratulate you for creating that atmosphere of accountability. For example, you walk into a bar or location, hey, everybody, Shelly, get that soda water. That's <laughs> tough to do, right? That's yeah. awesome. And Shelly, we have reached the rapid fire round. If you could answer these questions within 30 to 60 seconds, that would be great. Are you ready? Oh, God, I feel like I'm taking the SAT test. <laughs> <laughs> Let's do this. What was your worst memory from drinking? 
when my older son was probably two and a half and I woke up on the floor of his bedroom because it was closest to the bathroom and my mom just looking down at me and shaking her head and saying, oh, mother, what have you done? Hmm. It's my worst memory. And that's like from 23 years ago. What's your favorite resource in recovery? I've got a bunch. So Recovery Elevator, thank you for that. And Sense, which is another app that reminds me how many days I've got. And also uh, my daily reflections I read every single day. And every single day they, they've got a message for me that is so totally spot on. In regards to sobriety, Shelley, what's the best advice you've ever received? Accept help, whatever it is. You know, don't look at it and say, oh, I've tried that before, or, you know, I don't want to be around a bunch of Bible thumpers or whatever. Don't don't look at, read into anything or any kind of help. Just go and try it once, and if it doesn't work for you, try something else. You may have to try four or five things, but somewhere in there, you're going to find a nugget that's going to help you, and I can't say that every single meeting I go to works for me. Sometimes I walk home and go, God, well, what the hell is that all about? But you know what? I went. And going there is better than going to a bar. Like we always say when it's time to give donations, remember how much you spent when you drank and used. So I'm there every single day instead of drinking and using. And so be somewhere where you're going to, I don't care if you go to church every day, I don't care if you go to a meeting every day, or if you've got a group of friends you hang out with that are sober, find something and do it every day. And Shelly, what parting piece of guidance can you give to listeners who are thinking about quitting drinking or are in early recovery? If you're thinking about it, just do it. Just take that step. And if you're in it, stay in it and figure out whatever it is you have to do, like like I have, whatever you have to do to stay in it, you're in it to win it. And also accept that you're fallible. Accept that you could fall off the wagon at any moment and don't beat yourself up over it. That's the most important part is that don't worry about it. It's progress, not perfection. That's probably the best ever. Progress, not perfection. Shelly, before we go, I understand you have a website and a fitness blog. Can you tell us where we can learn more about you and what you do? Absolutely. It's ShellyLarsonFitness.com. And I'm actually going to put up a tip sheet for nutrition and recovery. So it'll be ShellyLarsonFitness.com forward slash recovery nutrition. It's always free. I give away most of my stuff because that's the best part of life is something that's free and something that's good. Good nutrition and recovery is key. Thank you so much yes. for joining me, Shelly. I appreciate it. Thanks, Paul. I've received a couple emails that the first couple Recovery Elevator episodes are not available on iTunes. And I believe this is something new that iTunes is doing is you can only get 20 episodes on iTunes. Here's the trick. Go to recoveryelevator.com, go to podcasts, and they all will be there, not just the latest 20 episodes. Because I did make a commitment to create 52 podcasts. That's one podcast every Monday coming out at 6 a.m. So you will be able to get all 52 podcasts for free at recoveryelevator.com. While you're at recoveryelevator.com, check out the great blog posts by Kelly. She's a phenomenal writer. She's also an alcoholic and she gets it. There's also a donation page. If you like the Recovery Elevator movement, feel free to donate through PayPal. $5, $10, whatever. We've actually received some extremely generous donations. And here's the kicker. I, Kelly, none of us, are ever going to see a cent of that because I have already donated and will donate all of that money to programs that benefit alcoholics. So if you like this movement and what we're doing, I want to show your support. Donate on the website. How do we make money at Recovery Elevator? Well, first off, that's not the point. The point is that I stay sober. And through 23 episodes of Recovery Elevator, I have done just that. I do have an app available on the iTunes App Store and on the Google Play Store. It's 99 cents. It's the Recovery Elevator Sobriety Tracker Sobriety Counter app. We've sold almost 1,000 apps. So that is one way we make a little bit of income. But the donations, that's going to the people who really need the money. Recovery Elevator, thank you so much for listening. You took the elevator down. You got to take the stairs back up. You can do this.